Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you'll always find exactly what you're looking for And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with my teammate from the 2023 Celebrity Softball Game in Seattle. We did it a couple weeks ago. Yes. Uh, yes. He's the star of Talk Soup, Community, The Great Indoors. Please welcome actor, comedian, and TV host, Joel McHale. Joel, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Brett. Uh, I look forward to not talking about anything in my career due to the strike rules. Correct. We, we won't. Um, I'm sorry about that. I'm sure. I know I warned you. <laughs> no, no. I understand that. And and I'm, I, I just want to do an overall basis of we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of it. Well, I have lots of questions for you. So this works. I out. love it. No, that'll be great. That'll be easier for me, too. I won't have to be host. But you walk into the we did the celebrity softball game a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago. And Joel walks into the locker room. I'm sitting there because I was so eager to get to get started with this softball game. I was the first one in there. Yeah, he was nude too, everyone. Just just fully nude in the Well, I did that I did that for you. But Joe walks in and I'll go I go, talk soup. And he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, That was a while ago, Booney. Um yeah. but I walk around life and most people relate to me as Seattle Mariner. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, hey, I love watching you with the Reds. It's rare that people say it, but I remember you as a Padre. I was in, I was only there one year. Uh, my daughter, my my stepdaughter, last night. I'm picking her up from dance, and I tell her Joel McHale's coming on the on the show tomorrow. Oh. And she sees a picture of me, and she goes, "Spy Kids Four. Yeah. And I started laughing, and I said, "So everybody knows 
each one of us walks around life and everybody knows us for a different. Now, if somebody came up to me and said, Hey, Brett Boone, you're that guy that does a podcast. That would be really strange for me, but you, Joel McHale walking around life. What's, what's the most you hear? I know from guys, my age, you're going to hear talk soup. Cause we, we watch it all the time. It went Kinnear Hanson and then McHale yep. as, as the big ones. Uh, from talk soup. Aaron I used to Tyler. I do I'll remember start. that she was brief though. Yeah, she was brief. She was, yeah. And that was kind of the end of the era. Uh, talk shows that were on uh, endlessly. I mean, chat, you know, like the Donahue's and the Sally Jesse Raphael's, which covered the 90s, and then and then it became reality. Uh, no, I think most people remember me from my my one year on the Padres as well. That's the weird part. And uh, I was you never were, on. You were good. Thank you. And I dressed as a, you know, Spanish priest from uh 1750 which uh was pretty cumbersome and hot it was a lot of wool i i regret it and i think i could have been a better player uh yeah i don't uh yeah it depends if i when i do stand up uh the, a lot of if if it's a if it's women in their 40s and 50s they they were fans of the e-show and if it's teenagers and people in their 20s then it's fans of community and then there'll be one fan of uh, great indoors because no one really remembers that. Uh, I got to work with the great uh, Stephen Fry uh, and uh, genius. And then, um, yeah, now like kids. Well, now they're older. I don't know how old your stepdaughter is, but they remember Spy Kids. And uh, yeah, and that was a brief. That, that was just a quick shoot in Austin. And it was it was. I mean, yeah, you just never know. It's it's kind of like uh, I don't know. I feel like a plumber. Or uh, like a doctor who just has all his instruments in a truck, just ready at any point to uh, pull one out and go, oh, yeah, I got a pipe for that. Here it is. And um, yeah, so it's it's been it's interesting. And now I'm on the show, The Bear. Again, I don't know if I can talk about any of this, uh, but now everyone that's uh, all of a sudden that one is it poking its head up. So uh, I'm extremely fortunate, Brett Booney, is what I'm saying. It's very cool. And I know, you know notwithstanding the 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 error you made in the softball game oh you were you were a football player you were a rower you went to the university of washington yeah you're on the football team you were you were part of that uh 93 rose bowl uh yes you dub team yeah um but as a kid okay i remember as a kid since i I, since I have any memories at all, all I was doing, I was throwing a tennis ball against against my grandpa's garage door because nobody else would play catch with me. It was getting dark. That's all I ever wanted to do. My dad, obviously, you know, my family did what they did, but it wasn't something that was, you're going to be a baseball player. You got to do this. You got to No, It's just something that organically, that's all I ever knew. That's all I ever wanted to do. You asked me from 12 years old in seventh grade and I went to the, you know, to the counselor to talk about my high school, what I was going to take in high school and what I wanted to do. And it was, uh, I'm going to be a baseball player. It's already been done. I don't know why you're asking me this stupid question. Joel McHale growing up. Oh. what do you want to do? I wanted to be Brett Boone. And they there was <laughs> like, who is Brett Boone? We're, we're a similar age. They're like, who is he? And I'm like, Believe me, this guy. Sometimes hear about him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's I got a, a time. Like, I got a time machine. You got an imaginary friend named Brett Boone. He's not imaginary, and stop talking <laughs> about him that way. It was. I was thrown out of school. 
Um, I knew very early on that I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a performer. I loved it. And uh, I was in a production of, in second grade, first grade in uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, Haddonfield. I know that. I was Medford, New Jersey kid now. I know Haddonfield. Right near Cherry Hill. And Yes. Uh, we only lived there for two years, but we did a staged version of It's a Small World, which is the ride at Disneyland. Yes, that's how much Disney had infiltrated public schools that you could, they're like, we're putting on a show. What is it? Chekhov? Nope. Sondheim? Mm-mm. No, this is a, a play made, you know, made up from a ride, which I had to give them credit. And uh, so it was like, uh, I, and I tried out for every part uh, because no one else really wanted to. And um, I was like six different parts in this show. And my parents were like, well, that was unexpected. They said I was so happy. And anyway, uh, in seventh grade, I was like, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. I can't read or write. So uh, entertainment seems the next logical course. Uh, but like you, I mean, all I wanted to do is play sports. So uh, uh, if, if a ball sports, same thing where I just, I would get up like at 6 a.m. and just go shoot hoops and uh because I wanted to be good, you know, on the team and stuff. But, um, but, but in the back of my mind, it was always acting and performing. And I just thought I'm not going to be good at anything else. So uh, I should really, I'm just going to go for this ridiculous, wonderful career. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's really all I ever wanted to do. And it, when I got to seventh grade, I started doing plays a lot. And I had these two friends that were really integral in, like helping me get there and I'm still friends with them today. And then I have this other friend who, uh, his name's John and also, and he's also an ex- great musician. So we, we were this, we were this little band in high school that of people that we played sports and acted. So, uh, we, we were thick as thieves. So it, we protected each other and, and, uh, it was, yeah, it was a good time. Everyone's always like high school was so rough. I'm like, I was well protected by my, friends and we got to do a bunch of cool plays and play sports so uh i know that's not everyone's experience but it, it was very i don't know what i would have turned out like but it was super fun and I, after that i was just like i'm keeping this going yeah mm-hmm. that's what you know when i when i went off on my journey and i you know i go to college and then i sign and the easiest thing for me was getting to the big leagues it was the easiest the toughest part was staying is, is there something similar? Is that similar in the Hollywood world? I mean, to, to get that first shot, but to yeah. the staying, the staying power is where you kind of separate from everybody else of, yeah, that guy that did that one show that one time or a guy that's had a 25, 30 year career. I, yeah. Now when you say it was easy to get into the major leagues, you, you were just, you were an excellent player, obviously. And they, teams were like lining up i'm getting you well i think i think it i think it was naive it was naivety on my part if that's even a word i went in i i honestly went into to my college career thinking all right i'm here to you know what do i need i need a 2.0 to stay eligible i know that just keep me on the field my junior year in college i was predicted you know projected to be this number one pick i ended up going in the fifth round 
I, and, and I was absolutely floored at every step that I took getting to the big list. And I said, these guys are crazy. What are you thinking? Taking me in the fifth round. My dad's kind of laughing at me. Like, what are you going to do? Change it? Are they going to go back and redo the draft? Cause you're not happy with your position. I went to the minor leagues. I got, <clears throat> I went through my short season in a ball. Double a was, a, you know, I, I'm an all-star double a, I'm an all-star. Now it's time to go to the big leagues. And I said, just get me to the big leagues. This is where I've been telling everybody let's go. I get called to the big leagues. It's no big deal. I get my first base hit. Randy Milligan, if you remember, is the first baseman for the Baltimore Orioles, standing on first. They throw in the ball, you know, your first hit, my first at bat. And he turns to me and he goes, <clears throat> he goes, Brett Boone, he said, congratulations on your first hit. You got 2,999 to go. <clears throat> and I remember being 22 years old, looking at him, being polite. But in my brain going, is this guy crazy? I'm going to get way more hits than that. That's how my brain was. Now, fast forward, humble pie was coming my way, and it came often. And I have, you know, when when I talk to people about my career or, or sports in general, it's it's ups and downs. You grow up, you get your ass kicked, and you get back off the mat, and you do it again. So I think it was a combination of – yeah, I was better than the next guy, but at the same time, I was in my brain, I was naive. I mean, I had no clue what was about to hit me, but I think in the end, it served as a positive for me because I truly believe the toughest thing in sports to do is trick your brain. You can talk a good game when the when the boys gather around and you're holding court, you can tell people what they want to hear. But when you go back home and you're in that and you're in that motel six in A-ball. And it's you in the mirror. Do you believe the crap you talk on the field? If you do, the guys that I see now, young players that really believe what they say, I want those guys. Yeah, they're gonna get they're gonna get humbled, they're gonna get knocked down. But those guys truly believe it. Yeah. Do you think? I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, well, I look at because I watch a lot of tennis now, and, and I see like all these guys are. I mean, and I mean, all the men and women, they're all insanely skilled athletes. There's right. no doubt. But then one or 2% can push just above that for the mental game and win more matches, even though they have skill. They all have these insane skill levels. Would you say that was true in baseball? Or would you say there is a gap between different, some a huge gap between athletic ability and uh, and with, with just physical athletic ability, or would you say it's close? Well, I think you, you have to be born with a certain, there's a bare minimum of a certain level to play at the highest level. I've seen guys that are AAA players and are solid players, and they get to the big leagues and it's too fast for them. Yeah. It's just that one notch up is just too fast for your skill set. Now, obviously, there's different levels of a skill set. You know, a LeBron James, a Ken Griffey Jr., a Mike Trout, yep. they're at the top of the skill set. But then there's players that that have good careers, and they bear they have that bare minimum to play in the NFL, to play in the NBA, to play in Major League Baseball. But I found once you have that certain criteria, if you meet that, now it's all a mental game. Yep. Because it, I can't tell you how many guys that I played with in AAA, and I'd watch them, i go, wow. This guy's going to be good one day. You never hear from him again. And then you have the guys that you thought, mm, you know, re real questionable on. I, I don't think he's got enough. And the next thing you know, you see him having really good career. So, yeah, to answer your question, 
there's definitely a minimum of fast twitch muscle fiber that you have to have to play yeah. at the top level. But the mental, the mental and the preparation, the discipline uh, really separates the, the, the good player from the, the big league player. And then you get, yeah. you get into that. There's different. There's, there's the big league player. There's the big league all-star. There's the big league superstar. So it's all, it's all different levels, but yeah, I found yeah. that it, when they stack the decks up and that's what they used to tell me. Cause I grew up as this kid running around veteran stadium in Philly, you know, and all my dad's team, my, he, I'd go to work with dad and it was Pete Rose and Steve Carlton and, and, uh, you know, guys like that, it was no big deal to me. And and I grew up on big league fields. But when I got to the big leagues as a player, different animal. You know, and everybody thought, well, you this isn't a big deal for you. You grew up here. Yeah, I grew up here as a kid being a pain in the ass probably to everybody. Now it's my job. And if I don't do my job, I get fired. So it was right. different. It, it was different for me. The minor getting, I don't know, because I have no experience in this, but it's almost like, being a being in a rock band playing the local pub and then going to a huge venue in front of 50,000 people going to Carnegie Hall you know there's yeah. got to there's there's a difference because when you step on a big league field and you just did to play in that softball game yeah for a softball game we're having fun it was no big deal but you'll notice it's different than going to the park with your buddies and playing in a softball game it's spacious there's something about a big league stadium that that really can't be replicated. Right. No, I, yeah. And it's, it seems like it's, you're doing a high wire act all the time. And anytime, you, I mean, when you're at the level that you guys are at, where it's like, there's guys that stay in the league for 20 years. And then there's other guys that are like, uh, yeah, he played two games and it just, you know, didn't click. <laughs> it wasn't right. And that is insane to me. Uh, and so it's just like at any moment, the plate stops spinning and, I, I yeah. How many league? How many years were you in the league? Fourteen. Fourteen, which is a very long career. Right, and then I look at other guys that played nineteen, and I go, "Wow, it seemed like I played a long time." You played nineteen years, and then there's guys. Nolan Ryan pitched in twenty-seven seasons. Uh, so that to me is like different level. Yeah, you're a pitcher; you can last longer, but to play that long, double yeah. the time I played essentially, and I felt like I played forever. Uh, it blows my mind. You, you know what? The thing that's fascinating to me is, is the comedy getting on stage. What, what you do. So as much as you, you're thinking, you know, me, the athlete and, and what that's like, I reverse it. And I go, I couldn't imagine going on stage, you know, cause I think I have a decent sense of humor, but actually being funny for a living and having to entertain this crowd and looking out there and going, they're not laughing. What do I do? That for the average person, that's that's absolute the biggest nightmare in the world. Um, I don't know. Take me through that. How do you get started? What's your first time you go on stage and just kill it and go? Yeah, this is kind of natural for me. I I do it. I, that uh, to me is like a Rubik's cube. I couldn't do it. Boy, uh, but it's like. Uh... Well, it's all I ever wanted to do. So there's that. So, you know, it's the, that similar uh, nerve, which is constantly firing in my brains telling, you know, because that's all I ever wanted to do was perform and make fart jokes. And, you know, so it's pretty sophisticated stuff. Uh, I, uh, 
I really sowed my oats, not sowed my oats, but I really cut my teeth uh, at the market theater in Seattle where uh, they do theater sports. And I was on stage like four nights a week for years. And I was also doing plays, but I was every, I got so comfortable on stage to really explore and not worry about not getting nervous in front of crowds. And, and so that's where that started. And it's, I, because I was a terrible student and, you know, like I, I, I wanted to get out of college as fast as I possibly could. Cause I, I was like, I just want to be in plays or in TV. Uh, that's where I, you know, gravitated to. And so the, uh, you know, like I didn't start doing stand up until 2004. Uh, so I did a lot of improvising and a lot of acting, but it wasn't until the soup became somewhat popular that I could at the end of the soup go, I'm going to be in, um, you know, and I'm going to be in North Dakota. Come see me at the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the, the rotary rec center. And that's when I started. So I got, I kind of backed into stand up because everyone was a fan of the show who showed up to my show. So I didn't have the same experience as like a road comic who really, uh, you know, like cut their teeth in front of strangers. And it wasn't until after the soup really kind of uh, stopped being a show, then all of a sudden people were showing up to, I was booking, comedy clubs and theaters and it was people who had never seen the show so that all of a sudden i was like oh i'm not a very good stand-up and then once once i kind of let go of all the soup stuff and i started doing all, uh, tons of other material that's when i was like okay you're okay at this you've gotten better and now you can defend yourself in front of uh in front of strangers and old people and young people and you know, just like practicing anything, if you're halfway decent at it, if you the more you do it, which I've done now thousands and thousands of times, the more comfortable you are and the more you can get a good read on an audience and you can adjust the show and try new material and use old material to get them. But it's it's I see it. It's like a game where you're like, all right, well, we have these many quarters and we have to you have to fill up that time and, or you have, you have to b b make sure you score this many times because uh, be, or they're going to kill you. So uh, I, then I, you know, that I don't know how you feel when you were on the field, but then all of a sudden I find myself, I mean, I enjoy it endlessly. I don't, I don't enjoy the travel as much anymore, but when I finally step on stage, it is, so I am, I can finally kind of calm down and it's great. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I mean, I can relate a little bit to, to getting on a stage and giving a, you know, speaking on something. Well, that's easy because especially if you're in my wheelhouse and talking sports and talking preparation, that's that's easy for me. Mix a joke in once in a while. Hopefully people laugh. Uh, but my my job isn't to make them laugh for somebody no. for somebody like you ever go into a uh, 
a gig. Let's go back to the beginning when you're first starting to do this. You have great material. You kill it. You you delivered it. You didn't. Uh, in your mind, you're going. I couldn't. I I couldn't had a better show tonight. Crowd goes crazy. Next night, you do the same show. Different crowd. You did just as good a job on your end. You didn't get the same reaction. And in your mind, going, what the hell's wrong with these people? You ever get that? Oh well, every crowd is different. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, and I have made jokes. I'm mean, like, I would, I would be like, this is really good material. Guys. <laughs> this uh, is great. Yeah. This, this is pretty a level stuff that I'm throwing at you. Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll make jokes like that. And if, if the crowd is really, I've only had a few shows where the crowd, you know, is going to run me off stage and, uh, there's definitely a learning experience to that and not all show. And then there's shows where you can, it's fun. Like if I do two shows on a Friday, you can feel how tired people are in the second show. It's very, it's a typical thing for comics. Cause these people have been working all day. They go to dinner with their girlfriend or boyfriend. They have drinks. They get, they show up for the second show, which starts like at 10 and usually they're going to bed at that time and all of a sudden this show starts and my friend like the different comics that i tour with will be like how do they seem they're like they're tired i'm like okay good that means we just have to work we just have to work a little harder and we'll have to muscle it through a bit and then once in a while it turns into magic and they wake up and other times it's like hey if i'm interrupting you guys going to bed then just get out of here you're good uh but that's that's one example of friday night shows but um yeah, it's, uh, I, I find it endless. I mean, you know, your my job is to go out there and make, I, they're being, I'm being paid to make people laugh. So if I don't do that, I'm like, well, sorry about that. We'll get, we'll get you next time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's for stand up comedy specifically. But, uh, but, and so I, yeah, I find it fun. Like I've got a gig coming up in, at Cornell University for the new students. And so I'll write a bunch of material for that specifically for them and for their parents. And uh, it will, uh, hopefully it'll work. And then I'll put in a bunch of my old stuff, not old stuff, but the newer stuff that's more general. And so I, I just have to plan out the attack and how, and, and then, you know, I'm usually on stage for an hour and 10 to 20 minutes, which I get, which I'm always like comedy. Don't stand on stage too long leave before leave them wanting a little more and not like, okay, thank, thank you so much. I think, I think, I think you, the point you made though, when you said, you know, I'll I'll sit there sometimes and if they're just not responding, I'll tell them, you know, this is really good shit. You should be listening. That would be great. If I wouldn't know what that is though, because I'm not that funny, but if I knew in my mind it really was top grade and they weren't laughing, I would love to say that to a crowd. Like, do you do you have any idea who you're listening to here and how yeah. good this is and you can't get this anywhere else? I think yeah, it'd be great if, if you knew you were good. But for for me, I couldn't say it because it's like, I, I probably suck at this. Well, Sport. go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I'll be like, I'm having a good time. I don't care what you guys are doing. <laughs> this is fun for me. I'm killing it. Yeah, it's always good as a comedian to point out how well you're doing. Um, no, I, I suppose in baseball, if like you keep completely connecting with the ball, but it's just it's just 
perfectly placed to the left fielder or they're just barely catching up to them. You're like, that was a really well-struck ball. Fuck. Yeah. I mean, it's good ABs in, in my world. It's like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get cheered every night. I'm going to get booed every night and it's going to roll into the next night. I got 162 of these. Yeah. So after, you know, you get a little experience. Crowds don't affect you. You know, you come into hostile territory. You don't care. That guy's going to be talking about my mom. And when I'm hitting, that's why I get pissed at golf tournaments when they're with the quiet police sign. I said, why is it quiet police? Why are they allowed to talk about my mom when I'm hitting? But we got to be quiet on your gentleman's game of golf. I think that's changing a little bit with Liv. They're bringing that edge to it. But as an athlete, this is just part of the gig. And there's very few times where I've been disrupted by a crowd's hostility or vice versa, a standing ovation. It's just what we do. You go into a different world and you play and some days you suck and some days you're good. You try to stay away from the years where you suck. And I've had a few of those and believe me, I'm like anybody else. I've had years in Cincinnati where I'm sitting under the stadium after a game in the dark by myself going, why can't I hit anymore? And, and it's an unbelievable thing. And the lengths you go to and the video and the things you try. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's and, and I was talking early about the humble pie and, and going through this unbelievable gauntlet for years and years. It's like I've had years where I'm at the top of the mountain and it's great. But by that point in my life, I had I'd been I'd had some some rough years and I thought, you know, I'm not. I'm really going to enjoy this, but I'm also going to keep in mind I appreciate how hard it is to be at the top of this mountain, and it doesn't just happen every year. So there's a there's a lot of humility to to especially after you've been in the game, you are, you come you break onto the scene, and there's not real really that much humility because you got there so quick, and everybody's telling you how good you are. They break you down a little bit after a few years, so there there becomes that humility. There's not too many guys I've played with that at some point don't have that humility, but it's, it's growing up. Yep. It's, it's part of life and anything you do. Um, how much for, how much in your life did sports play a role as far as trans translating into the Hollywood side? Oh, uh, immensely for me. Uh, well, what I was going to say was just, there are, there were like once community and the soup were finished, like, I was like, oh, I don't have a job. What am I going to do? And that was one of those, like, sitting in the dark, staring in the mirror, going, what, what, what's happened? What am I doing? Like, because I did the Super 12 years, and then I got on a sitcom that I thought was great, and then didn't do well. Uh, actually, it did okay, pretty well, but it didn't come back. And so I'm like, oh, what's, what's going to happen? What are we doing next? And so uh, I think if you from what I've learned, if you stay in the marathon, if you keep, if you keep the race going, you eventually start speeding up again and it comes back, uh, or people leave and that's that. Uh, but I, I am, I, I don't, I'm, I don't think I'll ever leave. I think I'll probably drop dead on stage. Uh, when I, hopefully when I'm, you know, 106, but, uh, with, as far as sports and, entertainment go i would say the entertainment business is very is similar in a way that it is extremely competitive out here and it always i mean in before i had anything going there were 25 guys 
ahead of me to get the next job and who were becoming stars. And there was all, we're all there's still to this day, there's always new people coming up and it's not like you got to beat them. It's just that you're all in the game. And, uh, I also learned, well, so, so the, the competitiveness is crazy. And if, if people get, you know, if they're just insanely skilled actors, then they, you know, and they have a lot of success, then they're going to be offered all sorts of stuff. But, um, I learned playing football on the Huskies. That was where I really learned my work ethic. I was like, these guys work so hard. We're practicing twice a day. They're going to school. Then they're studying at night and watching tape at night. And then they travel and they have these gigantic games and the pressure of the entire state or Western Washington is upon them. And then they do the same thing week in and week out and try not to turn their knee inside out. And so I, I was like, Oh, as if you, if you put in it, basically it's like three full-time jobs and that I was like, that is the level of commitment I have to make to try and get this career, you know, to make my career. So I was like, I'm not the most talented, but I will outwork you uh, in, you know, when it comes to acting. I will, I'll, I'll put in the effort more than, that was kind of, that was like, I'll make up for it with uh, chutzpah. Any, any similarities between a coach and a director? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, in a, yeah, I would say, I mean, they're in, they're in control and it's their vision and it's their, they know, it depends on the director. Some directors don't, ha they don't have any idea what they're going for. And that makes for a very long day. Uh, and then there's other directors that are, they know exactly what they want. And when they get what they need and they've already edited the scene in their brain, uh, then you can move on and it's collaborative. Um, I'm lucky because I've never really been with a director. I mean, you hear about these directors that have power, that, that do power, control and they're intimidating and manipulative i'm lucky i haven't worked with uh folks like that because there's there's those those uh legends are rampant i mean i think with the me too movement it's, it's thankfully calmed down a bit but most of the directors are their collaborators and yeah they have the vision and uh and you yeah you just want the lou Pinella. you want the guy that uh yeah, that that's uh, getting caught on camera smoking every ten minutes. Uh, but uh, uh, you want you want the leader that uh, you feel like. Oh, I'm. I feel like this boat is going in the right direction. We're going towards Hawaii, so we'll be fine as long as we can just get there. What do you think? You have you had coaches that you're like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're doing. They are disorganized. And Without a doubt, most. Wow. You know, the, the, the biggest fallacy and, and the thing I laugh about in the game of sports is, tip, you know, fan base. If the team isn't hitting, what's the first thing they're going to say on Twitter? They need to fire the hitting coach. People don't realize hitting coach really has nothing to do with it. Hitting coach is a glorified psychologist. I, I've worked with so many hitting guys in my life, and, and there's a, I can count them on, <laughs> well, I can count them on three fingers. The people that could actually help me get a hit. Mm -hmm. if, if the peanut lady 
the hot dog salesman could help me get a hit, I'd be with them. That's how, when you get to the big leagues and I get frustrated with it, it's like these guys are big league hitters. They Once you get into the box, nothing's going to help. You can do all the physical. All I asked from a hitting instructor was to be there, to work early. And, and once in a while, if you can come up with something that can just release something in my brain. I've had one. I don't, I don't know if you remember uh, in the early 2000s. You mentioned Lou Pinella. He had a guy named uh, uh, Lee Ilya, who was also a coach with my father in Philly in the 70s. Wow. He was, a, he was our part-time hitting coach. And once in a while, he'd come up to me. I'd be sitting on the bench, and I'm working. You know, I got the bat, and I'm gripping it. And I have that look on my face, obviously, like I'm lost. Hey, Booney, how you feeling? At Lou, or uh, not Lou, Lee, how do you think I'm feeling? You've been watching me the last two games? And I've shared this story before. He'd say something to me like, remember two weeks ago when we were in Texas and you did that thing with your top hand? I'd look at him and I'd go, yeah. And he goes, why don't you try that? And he'd walk away. Now, all of a sudden, I have hope for my next at bat where I was dead. I was dead in the water. I've got no clue. I don't know what's going on. So it's little things like that that, you know, coaches don't help you. I, I, I laugh at these at, at kids with parents they're going to send them to this guru this pitching guru this hitting it's irrelevant we we discussed early there's certain people that are predetermined to play at the top level you have to have that skill set now once you have that skill set how do you learn you don't learn at these camps you learn from trial and error you learn from repetition you learn from going in the cage for hours and hours on end until your knuckles bleed and you try this and you try my top hands here, my bottom hand here, I'm open, I'm closed. I'm doing this right before the pitch comes is released. Um, and that, Oh, I think that's it. I think that's it. I'm going to take that into the game up. That didn't work back to the drawing board. That's how you learn. And that's how we all learn. And these, these camps and this, it's great if you get to play more games, but that's not how we learn. We learned through trial and error from getting our butt kicked, get up and try something else until whatever works for you. It's very individualistic. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that go about it a different way. We get to the same point when that ball's in the hitting zone. All of us, Edgar Martinez is going to start with his hands up here. I'm going to start down here. When that pitch is in the hitting zone and we're right, we're going to be at very similar spots, but how we get there is completely different. And that's part of the journey. And that's part of the, what keeps you going like there's got to be something there's got to be something i could be better i can do this i can do that and it's that non-stop quest i had some young uh as a young player i had guys that took me under their wing and kind of taught me the ropes the basics uh that was helpful that's the thing for me too is interesting in your business when you were breaking in when you were that young kid hungry and just wanting to do it all wanting to be an entertainer was there anybody in particular that that mentored you that took you under their wing and said, all right joel you want to do this i'm going to teach you this is a did you have somebody like that tino martinez ironically <laughs> I he's, got, believe. he's got four rigs it's incredible yeah so he uh he had a lot of stanislavski uh he did a lot of breath work with me no uh breathing by the way breathing good good it's a good thing I mean, uh, yeah, no, well, when I walk on stage, I'll be, I, you, I just take a deep breath and I was like, I'll either say something like, well, here goes nothing or fuck all these people. And then I'll walk out and, uh, not in a, 
mean way, but in a, eh, what are you going to do? Now we just got to, now we just got to have a good time because we've tried, we, I've done every, I've done all the work up to now. So you might as well just, uh, might as well just let it all go. Um, I've had a number of mentors and people that, you know, actors are sensitive people and, you know, they got, we, all we want is to, and we want people to like us um, and all that crap. But I would say growing up, there was a, like, I was part of this thing called the ensemble in high school, which was just a group of actors that would get together every Monday night. And we had uh, a couple teachers, Peter Donaldson, Matt Smith, uh they and matt smith still teaches i think peter donaldson still teaches but that allowed us to every night and during the week just fuck up just uh do things wrong and do things uh strangely and try things out and then uh i got extremely lucky because i got on the show almost live when i was in college and there was a number of people basically the entire cast took me under their wing and uh and and with the immediate pressure of being on live television and i can't read i'm super dyslexic the pressure of that uh they took such good care of me if i were on snl i probably would have been fired in the first 10 minutes uh and it so that they really took care of me and I could be on Seattle television and really screw up, not be great. I was okay sometimes. And th by the time I got down to Los Angeles, uh, I had some experience on camera. So then when like one of the first roles I booked and I got very lucky was on Will and Grace and you know, the pressure of there, the live audience, you've got all these people, you've got these extremely famous people who are starring in the biggest show on television. And, uh, you know, like, I remember going like, oh, okay, I'm ready for this. This is what I want to do. This is exactly how this, and people are like, were you nervous? And I was like, strangely wasn't, I because I was having such a good time. And uh, I was, I felt definitely ready. I mean, sure, I didn't, couldn't get an agent or book a job for like three more years, but still, uh, that's a very long way of saying, uh, you know, yes, there were like the cast of almost live, a couple of teachers at uh, market theater and they really took care of me. And, you know, cause you got a big glute of a guy that thinks he's an actor and it just, it just takes a long, it just takes, it's a, a lot of two steps forward, one step backward. 2400 sports is an odyssey company.